Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. As some of you know, I went to a small Christian liberal arts college in Johnson City, Tennessee, called Milligan College. And when I say small, I mean small. While I was there, the school broke the 1,000-student barrier, and we celebrated by eating sheet cake in the cafeteria. Uh, If you have assumptions about small Christian colleges, they're probably true. One of the assumptions for a lot of students was that you would find the one. Students show up on moving day foaming at the mouth with the expectation that they're going to find a spouse. There's even a joke, a ring by spring or tuition's free. It's awful. It's terrible. But it's part of culture of going to a small Christian college. So my junior year, me and a few of my friends were tasked with making a video of all the freshmen moving in that day. And so in the past, what we would do is is they'd film kind of like a time-lapse version of all the freshmen going in. You'd show it to them later. It It was kind of a way to celebrate that they were here. But instead of just filming students carrying boxes, we decided to make a video about getting a date while at Milligan. And so the first thing we did was we actually interviewed our president to ask him how he found his wife. And he told us that persistence was key. So my friend Curtis, who actually preached here a few weeks ago, decided to see if the idea worked. And so the first girl he saw that day, he asked out on a date. And she looked disgusted at him, but you could tell there was cameras around, so she was a little bit more patient, and explained to him, no, she like gently shut him down, no, I've got a boyfriend. After helping a few more freshmen move in, Curtis went back to the girl again to ask her for a date, and she said no. He then bumped into her dad, who was carrying a few boxes up the stairs and offered to help, and when dropping off the boxes in her room, he said, hey, I met your dad, do you want to go on a date? And she said no. After she was done moving in, he bumped into her again in the cafeteria and asked, and she said no. Then later that night at the freshman dinner, asked again, she said no. Then again later at a freshman ice cream social, she said no. Then again as she was walking to her room at the end of the night, and she said no. Then one last time, he yelled up the stairwell and asked this girl for a date. A few minutes went by, and we started to pack up our gear because we realized, like, the bit's over, the video's done, we can pack up. And as we were walking away, the girl walked down to the second floor landing and said, okay, I'll go on a date with you. Curtis, who was immediately shocked, was like, but you have a boyfriend. And she's like, but you are so persistent. This reminds me of a verse in the Bible. Hard right turn. We're doing it. (laughs) Hebrews 10 says this. (laughs) It'll connect later. You'll be fine. Hebrews 10 says this, you need to persevere so when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. And the author of this is letting us know that God wants what's best for us. I know for me, sometimes in my life, I feel like I'm being consistent. I feel like I'm acting well within my season that I find myself in, but nothing is happening or what I want isn't happening. And we know that insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. So how long do we do the right thing before we give up? And some of you are thinking right now, I don't have to put up with this, that I'm done. See, it's cute when Curtis is being persistent and asking a girl out on a date, but how long do you stay in your marriage? How long do you try to follow a budget? How long do you keep tackling that one sin issue in your life that just keeps seeping back in? How long do you keep working at the startup business before you shut it down? How long do you put up with your boss? 
How long do you keep going down that career path before you choose to go back to school and start all over again? I want to talk to the people today that feel discouraged, the people who are ready to throw in the towel. And I want to give you hope. And I believe that if you're open to hearing what God says to you today, that you will leave here more excited than when you came in. I believe that you'll enter tomorrow knowing the future will be better than the past. And I, I believe you'll feel better about your situation. You'll feel more confidence knowing that God has faith in you. And hopefully you'll have more faith in him. So today I'm going to teach through a Bible story that's seen in 2 Kings chapter 5. And this happened in 900 B.C., so about 2,900 years ago. But even though it happened so long ago, we can still learn something from this story. And so this is where it starts off, 2 Kings 5, verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So Aram is a country in the northeast of Israel, and Naaman is a very powerful figure. He's incredibly important. He's a high-ranking general. He has fought battles. He has won. He has thought very highly in his culture. But there's one thing that Aram has that kind of sets him apart and kind of makes him different, and that's that he has leprosy. Now, I didn't put the footnote in there, but if you're reading on your Bible, if you're reading on your Bible app, you'll see there might be a little footnote right next to it. And this is because in our day and age, leprosy refers to a very specific type of skin disease. But in the Bible, they didn't have a specific type of diagnosis, so it's referred to just a general skin disease. And so Naaman, even though he's a great soldier and a great warrior, he has leprosy. The story continues. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. I want to think about this for just one second. In a moment, you're actually going to see God act on Naaman's behalf. But we read this and we realize he's a part of a group of people who are attacking the Israelites. He's attacking the people of God. They're not just attacking them, then they're enslaving them. And so if we're looking for a stand-up person who God intervenes on behalf of, Naaman probably isn't that person. The fact that he's attacking and enslaving people kind of negates that, right? Like we wouldn't think of him as somebody that God would work on behalf of. And so here's what I want you to see right off the top. God acting in our lives isn't contingent on us being perfect. Nothing I'm going to say today, nothing that we learn today from God is contingent on you having a perfect past. It's not contingent on you having a promising present. It's not even contingent on you making a promise to God. Because you've been there before, right? You've made that promise to God. You see the flashing blue lights, and you say, I pray, dear God, if you get me out of this, I will, and you fill in the blank. I'll never go there again. I'll give some money. I'll go to church. Some of you might be here because you saw those lights. You prayed to God, and maybe you didn't get a ticket. My favorite show when I was a kid was The Simpsons. Uh, and there's an episode where a hurricane is coming through Springfield, and the whole family is huddled in the basement. And they're terrified their life is about to end. In fact, at one moment, Homer is swept out, and the whole family grabs him and pulls him back in. And what Marge does, she goes into the corner and she prays, and this is what she says. She says, Dear God, this is Marge Simpson. If you stop this hurricane and save our family, we'll be forever grateful and re recommend you to all of our friends. And in that moment, the hurricane stops, and Homer says, He fell for it. Way to go, Marge. <laughs> you know, and it's funny, but we've done that too. And God answers prayers. But God doesn't answer those prayers. God isn't into deals. And the reason why is because God answering our prayers is not contingent on a promise that we make him. It is contingent on his character. 
It's not contingent on my character. And that's a good thing. And so right off the bat, I want you to see this. Naaman is a sinner. He's messed up. He's not a good dude. But God acts in his life anyways. Because God acting in your life is not based on what you do or do not say, or what you do or do not do, or what you do or do not promise. And that's a good thing. That should give you a ton of relief. The story continues. She said to her mistress, meaning the slave said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Don't you hate it when you have a problem in your life and people want to give you unsolicited advice? Right? You tell them that you're struggling with conflict at work, and they're like, hey, I've got five things that you should try right now to work through it. In fact, the first thing I read on BuzzFeed, and we know BuzzFeed's real, so it'll solve all of your problems, and I'm going to tell these to you right now. And you just kind of have to sit there, and the entire time you're sitting there listening to this advice over and over and over again, all you're thinking is, oh, really? I didn't really ask for suggestions, so how about you just shut your mouth and leave me alone? But don't you know that when you're desperate enough, you'll try anything? And Naaman is so desperate that even though the advice is coming from his slave, and even though it's coming from an Israelite, someone that they oppose and they fight and they attack and kill, he's so desperate that he decided it was worth a shot. And so that's what Naaman did. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him uh, 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. And so Naaman brings gifts to this prophet. Naaman's about to go and figure out, like, who is this prophet that might be able to cure my leprosy? And he brings gold, and he brings silver, and he brings clothes. I'm not really sure with that. We're just going to roll with that and keep going. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Imagine this scene, right? This is the commander of the foreign army. He's an enemy. And he assembles his entire entourage, and they show up at Elijah's house. This would be the equivalent of the commander of the Joint Chiefs of Staff showing up in your front yard. This is a really big deal. The the neighbors are are peeking through the blinds. Social media is going nuts. But this is what Elisha did, 2 Kings 5.10. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. I love this. I love the idea that Elisha doesn't even get up off the couch. He doesn't feel like he has to. He sends a messenger and says, hey, I know you're powerful. I know you're important. I know that you can hurt me. I know you've hurt my people, but you know what? I'm just going to send my messenger. Go wash in the Jordan River. And here's an important part of that story. Sometimes God's ways don't make sense. And if I'm being completely honest, I really, really don't like that. Do you know the universal favorite word for a two-year-old? Any guesses? Yeah, a lot of people said no. Here's the, here's the universal favorite. This is the one that we've, we're experiencing in my household right now. It's not no, it's why. We're going to the store. Why? So we can buy some food. Why? Because we have to eat. Why? Because our bodies need food. Why? Because that's how God made us. Why? Well, you'll have to ask him why. And it's really annoying, but to be honest, I do the exact same thing with God. Because I know that I always want to know why. See, I'm okay with obeying God when I understand why. I'm more than okay with trusting God when I can see something that is good for me. So to be honest, I can fully understand why God says to save sex marriage. Now, I can go on about this, but I'm going to give you a few examples that aren't even from the Bible. Social science proves that kids who grow up without a father are more likely to struggle with addiction, to be impoverished, and end up in prison. 
In fact, 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes, five times the average. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. That's 32 times the average. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes, 20 times the average. And so I know when God says save sex for marriage, and I understand that abstinence is the perfect birth control, it makes perfect sense to me. Because God wants his children to grow up in a home with parents who love him and who are devoted not only to each other, but to God. But I don't like when I don't understand what God's doing. And so when I don't understand, I have to remind myself that two things so that I don't end up like a whiny two-year-old. The first thing is that God is smarter than I am. I know, it's hard to believe, but it's true. If there's a creator who made the universe from nothing, which science leads me to believe, and scripture says it's true, and my experience says must be true, it's probably true that that person is smarter than I am. The second thing that comforts me when I don't understand is that God loves me. Because if someone will go through all the trouble of giving up their son to die for me, as sinful as I have been, and this was all before I ever decided to follow God, all before I ever went to church, all before I even knew this was a thing, and it's not contingent on anything that I do or do not do or do or do not say or do or do not promise, then I realize that that person loves me. So when I don't understand why God tells me to do things or what God is doing, I can be a whiny two-year-old, or I can remind myself that God is smarter than me, and he loves me, so he probably knows what's best. The story continues. <clears throat> but Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me, uh, come out to me and stand and call in the name of his Lord, the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. And so essentially what Naaman is saying is like, I, I came all this way, I brought this army, I'm really important, pay attention to me. And he was hoping that he'd kind of come up and like do this David Blaine stuff and poof, he'd be healed. But that's not what Elisha told him to do. And Naaman continues, still frustrated, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. And Naaman's upset. Naaman's frustrated because he wanted to be done like that. Naaman didn't want to go into the Jordan River, which isn't a clean body of water. When Naaman gets mad, he says, why do I have to do this? And, and for me, when I read the story, I kind of roll my eyes and think, God wants to heal you. Just do what he told you to do. But we do the exact same thing in our own lives. Do you ever get mad because what God told you wasn't what you wanted God to tell you? Like you wanted him to give you some extravagant mission with your life so you can change the world. He says, no, go tell your family about me. You wanted him to say, you're going to have three kids, but God said, you should adopt. You wanted him to say, just follow your sexual urges. If you're in love, it's good. But he said, keep the marriage bed pure. How often are we like Naaman? Listen, if you follow Jesus for any length of time, he will tell you to do something that you don't want to do. It's the reality of it. It happens all the time. And for you, that's a fork in the road moment of whether you're going to continue to follow God or to be your own God. And thankfully, Naaman has people in his life to push him forward. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? They're essentially telling Naaman, hey, we came all this way. 
if it was bigger, if you got more attention from it, if it wasn't humiliating, you would have done it. So why not give it a shot? What's the worst that could happen? When God tells you to do something that you don't want to do, the question is simply this. Will you have humility? Are you humble enough? Or will you be like a whiny two-year-old that has to understand why all the time? When you don't understand God, will you have humility and submit to him anyway? Because he's smarter than you, and he loves you. The story continues. So he went and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. When Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God, he stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except Israel. When you obey God, when you submit to him and you humble yourself before him, it will lead to life to the fullest every time. You may not understand why. You may not understand how. It may be a lot of trouble. It may be humbling. It may be weird. But obedience and following what God teaches leads us to life to the fullest every day of the week. I know it feels like gossiping will help you get back at the person, but Jesus says, turn the other cheek. I know you want to focus on yourself, and we don't call it that. We call it me time. But really, all it is is that you're obsessed with yourself, and Jesus says, anyone who follows me should be a servant of all, not the center of all. I know you think that keeping all your finances to yourself will make you financially secure, but Jesus says, test me, give it away, I'll take care of you. I know you want to live moment by moment, but Jesus says, live in light of eternity. My kingdom is forever, and don't lose sight of that. Because when we obey God, it leads to life to the fullest every time. And here's the thing. That's a really cool story. Uh, a lot of people have never even heard of Naaman. It's something that I read in college and forgot all about until we're kind of going through this series. And I know that in this story, I can learn a lot from Naaman. I need humility. That's an easy thing. I definitely need that. I need to trust God. But the thing in this story that doesn't make sense is why seven times? Why did God, through Elisha, tell him to dip seven times? Think about it. One time would have shown humility, right? He's an Israelite. His people are captive. If an Israelite told him to dip one time, that shows humility. That shows obedience. Why seven times? And I get that somebody here, Bible Bible trivia answer man, is here thinking, well, seven is the number of completion. Don't you know that in Genesis 1, God took seven days to make the world? No one took seven pairs of clean animals into the ark. And Joshua marked seven times around Jericho. And Jesus said to forgive your neighbor 77 times. Yes, I get it, okay? Seven is a special number in the Bible. And you see it throughout the entire thing. But the question still remains, why does God tell Naaman to be dipped seven times? I'm going to be straight up. I don't know. I really don't know. I read commentaries and people who are way smarter than me. I was like, can somebody please tell me why seven? And I couldn't figure it out, but I do have a hunch. I think God wants to see how badly Naaman wants it. Each week of this series, we have done a different topic. And so the first week was integration. The second week was consistency. The third week was seasons. And so today's topic is persistence. Persistence is the difference between successful people and people. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, A man is a hero not because he is braver than other people, but because he is braver for 10 minutes longer. 
There's a story about Thomas Edison and his persistence. He had over 1,033 patents to his name. And one time someone was making fun of him because he had failed over 25,000 times while experimenting with a storage battery. And Edison's response was, no, I didn't fail. I just figured out 24,999 ways that didn't work. So here's what I want you to see. The gap between fulfillment and disappointment is persistence. And listen, we've heard stories of athletes who persist and inventors who persist, and those are fine, right? Those are inspiring. We love those. But what I want to know is, are we going to be people who obey God all the way? Are we going to be people who persist? And here's the challenge. Our progress is not always obvious. See, if I was God, I would do this differently. I probably wouldn't have told him to dip seven times. I don't really, I don't know if I'd make him do that. And if I did, I probably would have shown him some progress along the way, right? Like each dip would have meant something new. Dip one, you're getting a little bit better. Dip two, it's a little bit better. By the time you're at six, you're almost cured. And I would have shown him progress every step of the way to say, hey, you're obeying. Check out the results. But don't you know that's not how God works in your own life? What this story teaches us is not to stop on six. I'm talking to a mom who cried yourself to sleep this week because your toddler is becoming too much to handle and you think you're a bad mom. Don't stop on six. I'm talking to the person who has turned in 30 resumes and has got nothing. Don't stop on six. I'm talking to the person who's been working out and eating healthy, and you're honestly embarrassed to tell other people because, you, because when you do, you can tell they are looking at you thinking there's not, not much of a difference. If you're being honest with yourself, you can't see it either. Don't stop on six. I'm talking to the person who has good rhythm of reading their Bible and praying and spending time every day with God, but you don't hear his voice. Don't stop on six. I'm talking to the single person who's tried every dating site and blind dating and praying about it, and you're convinced that Mr. Right doesn't exist. Don't stop on six. I'm talking to the person who put their life into their business and their heart and soul is in this thing, and you think that you should give up because the number's going down instead of up. Don't stop on six. I'm talking to the spouse whose marriage is horrible and you want to throw in the towel. Don't stop on six. Because the reason why you can keep going is because Jesus did it for you. He was betrayed by one of his 12, and he didn't stop. His inner circle ran away in fear when he was arrested, and he didn't stop. He was on trial in front of the high priest, and he didn't stop. They spit on him, blindfolded, beat, and mocked him, and he didn't stop. He overheard his closest friends say, I don't even know who he is, and he didn't stop. They whipped him. He didn't stop. They put a cross on his back. He didn't stop. They drove a nail into his wrist and his feet, and he didn't stop. They mocked him. He didn't stop. He died. He didn't stop, and he rose from the dead. And he proved forever that he is the son of God, that he is the savior of the world, and he is the one who will redeem us and guide us. He said, whoever believes in me will do greater things than I. I want you to know today that there is a gift of grace available for you, and it's free. Because Jesus didn't stop going to the cross and rising from the grave. And he did it for you before he ever knew you, before he ever knew you'd want to love him. Before any of those things happened, he did it for you. And if you are somebody who is stopping on six because they're not ready or too afraid to make that decision to fully be all in and let him be the leader of your life, I want to have a conversation with you. I want to talk to you about becoming free. I want to talk to you about hope and purpose, and living life to the fullest. On your connection card, there's a box that says baptism. Check it off. Let's sit down and let's talk.
you've already accepted that free gift, be reminded that you are free because Jesus didn't stop, that you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. That means even if you're on the fifth dip or the sixth dip, you don't stop because God's power lives inside of you, and he's going to give you the strength to keep going. Just like last week, I have a few questions I want us to wrestle with this week. And so the first one is this. What have I stopped praying for? And to be honest, this one will mess with you. There's a fascinating scripture in Daniel 10, and we talked about Daniel a few weeks ago. And after he is unscathed in the lion's den, a few chapters later, Daniel gets a vision from God. This is how God spoke to Daniel. And Daniel gets this vision, and he's scared. And so he immediately starts praying, and he doesn't just pray. He also goes without food. He actually starts fasting. And over this time, he asks God, tell me what this dream means. Tell me, like, give me an answer. Show me what you're trying to say to me. And after 21 days without food and praying and calling out to God, an angel appears to Daniel. And this is fascinating. This is what the angel says. The angel tells Daniel, as soon as you started praying, God dispatched me to come give you an answer. But then the angel says, but I was held up for 21 days by spiritual forces of evil. And now I'm here to tell you your answer. And there's a lot in this story I don't understand. But the one thing I do understand is to keep praying. Because I've always wondered when I read this story, what would have happened if Daniel stopped praying and fasting at 20 days? I mean, he'd gone without food for 20 days. And he knows that God hears every prayer. But what if 20 days was just too much for him? And it makes me wonder if that angel would have turned around and went back to God and said, hey, Daniel stopped. He doesn't need me anymore. Matthew 7, 7 says, ask and it will be given to you. But the better way of understanding that verse is actually keep asking. Because Jesus loves you and he gives good gifts to his children. So keep asking him for a child. Keep asking him for a spouse. Keep asking him for a great job. Keep asking him that your loved one will come to know who Jesus is. Keep asking him that you won't give up on the great journey to raise your children to love Jesus. Keep asking him because he's a good God who loves you. So don't stop on six. The second question is what does God want me to keep doing? What do you need to keep doing in your life right now? There's something in your life that isn't bearing any fruit, right? It feels pointless. You want to quit. But you know deep down inside God's telling you, keep going. And the reality is you just don't want to. You want to quit. And reading Naaman's story, whatever he's telling you to do, whatever he's pushing you to do, is probably something painful. It's probably something hard. It's probably something awkward. In fact, for all of us, part of it probably involves someone who doesn't know Jesus that we've given up on. And God keeps prompting us, keep inviting them. Keep showing them what grace and hope looks like. God's saying, keep going because he's refining you and he's using this and he wants what is best for you. And I know that you can't see it right now and I know your life feels like the dirty creek of a Jordan River and it's gross and you don't like it and you want to be anywhere else, but God is saying just obey. Don't stop on six. You will see your father who loves you if you don't give up. There's one caveat to all this today. So one warning that I want to share with all of you, and to do it, I want to tell you a story. 
So Jim Collins is a best-selling business author, and he tells this incredible story about his wife. His wife does Ironman triathlons, which are 140 miles of swimming, biking, and running. It's insane. Like the idea of doing 140 miles of anything. I can't drive 140 miles before I'm like, I need a break. And that's what this woman does for her hobby. And not only does she compete in Ironmans, but she actually participated in the Kona Ironman, which is the world championship, which is the best of the best of the best when it comes to triathlons. And so she trained a ton. She managed her diet. She managed her working out. And finally, the day of the race came, and at the end of the swim, she was in first place among all the women. Then the bikes, after 112 miles of bike riding, she was still in first place. And then came an entire marathon. And with 10 miles to go, she had a 10-minute lead. She was destroying the competition. But then something happened. At nine miles to go, she had a nine-minute lead. At eight miles to go, she had an eight-minute lead. At seven miles, seven minutes. Six miles, six minutes. And it gets to be three miles to go, and she has a three-minute lead. And at this point, Jim is actually watching in the ABC truck because they're in front of her filming. And you can see the girl behind her gaining in the distance. And at three miles left, she stops. She doesn't even walk. And she takes this moment, and she looks up to the heavens, and then down at her legs. And she balls her hands into fists, and she pounds her legs three times. And then she starts running again. One mile to go, she had a 56-second lead. And Jim Collins watched at the finish line as his wife completed this 140-mile race, the world championship, the best of the best of the best. And she won first place by 13 seconds. A couple days later, when she had recovered, Jim asked her what happened. And what she said was she said, the whole time I was training, the thing that kept me going, the thing that kept me working out, the thing that kept me getting up early and eating healthy was my desire to win. But with three miles to go, I realized it was no longer in my control if I won this race because my body was done. She said she had to come up with a new motivation or she wasn't going to be able to finish. So she said her new motivation was running every step for the last three miles of the race as hard as she could possibly will her body to go. She said if she did that, she'd be happy with how she finished. And she didn't care if it was first place or tenth place. If she ran as hard as she could, she would be happy. And then she finished by saying, and only I would know. Think about if Naaman stopped at six dips. He could have gone home and told everyone. He could have said, I went to a different country. I submitted to a different religion. I went in this dirty creek. I was dipped six times. I did all of this, and nothing happened. And the people around him would have said, that God doesn't exist. That prophet is crazy. At least you tried. But deep down inside, Naaman would have known that he was told to dip seven times and that he stopped on six. See, when you go through with the divorce and you'll have your reasons, you can tell people the things you did to try and you'll be right. And people will see that. But you will know that you stopped on six. Because when you stop on six, everyone around you will see that you tried. But only you and God will know if you gave it your all. So I want this sermon to be an encouragement for those of you who are weighed down, discouraged, and want to give up. Don't quit. God has given you direction. 
You know what you need to do. Don't stop on six. Because the gap between fulfillment and disappointment is persistence. God's ways for you are best. He created the universe from nothing, and he loves you. And we see that through Jesus. So don't give up on his plan because you haven't seen the end of it yet. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised, which is eternity with him. Let's pray. God, thank you that, um, that you don't give up on us. God, that persistence doesn't start with us, that we don't set the tone for that. But God, before we were ever born, before we were ever a thought, you knew us and you cared for us and you loved us enough to send your son to die for us. And God, that after everything he went through, after all the beatings and the mockings and everything that he experienced, the shame and, and the experience from his own family betraying him and his friends leaving him behind, that God, we are so thankful that he didn't give up. God, I pray for us this week that we don't stop on sex. That the things in our life that we are struggling with, the things that we feel weighed down by, the things that we know you're calling us to do, God, give us the strength this week to, to take it a step further. Help us not give up. Help us not quit. We love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.